On the Empire Podcast this week, it's booth overload as Jupiter Ascending's Douglas pops into our pod booth, while Bosch star Titus Welliver drops by to tell us that yes, his face is his warrant. All that and more on the movie podcast. It is a connoisseur of masking tape. Uh, read into that what you will. Hello Pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the Empire Podcast. Joining me this week are two colleagues of such lethal cunning and uh, also inspired by the Fifty Shades of Grey trailer. They are connoisseurs of a certain type this week. Uh, first up is our geek queen. Uh, she is a connoisseur of Winchester Brother waistband elastic. <laughs> I'm saying. It's remarkably specific kind it is, of isn't type. It? Uh, yeah. Helen O'Hara, how Hello. are you? I'm Good? very well, thank you. Excellent. Uh, next up is our art house guru, a man who is a connoisseur of white ribbon. That's oh, correct. Highbrow. Yeah, I know. I had to Google that one. But yeah, pretty good. Hey, Phil, how's it going? Phil Simlin. Hi. Very good. Thank you, Chris. Excellent. Welcome both to the pod booth. We're going to do just one question, one question from you guys that you've been sending in. Uh, we've got a cracker we're going to save for next week. Here's, the, here's one from at CheeseManJC. CheeseManJC, who hashtags it first question. <laughs> so it doesn't necessarily mean if you send in something and you, you point out it's the, you know, the first time you sent in a question it doesn't necessarily mean we're going to be uh, predisposed to putting it on the podcast but it can't hurt um, and this is, an, uh, this is a reaction to the question a few weeks ago about uh, movies that were shot or set in Australia so what are your favourite movies shot or set in see, see if you can guess it New Zealand. Oh, come on now. The old Antipodean rivalry kicks off again. Yes. Let's get it out of the way. The Lord of the Rings is the greatest uh, movies set in New Zealand. Uh, um, and the ones that make best use of the incredible New Zealand landscape. What? It, no, it, it's that's not even controversial. The Lord of the Rings was shot in New Zealand. Um, only actually the reshoots where they couldn't get back to Middle Earth. They couldn't get the whole crew back to Middle Earth. So... Okay. They had to shoot the reshoots in New Zealand. Okay, so you're saying definitively. Definitively, that is the correct answer. But I would at this That's point... That's very interesting, mm. given that there are a lot of great New Zealand films. Given yeah. that I don't consider those films to be Peter Jackson's best films. Yeah, you don't. Given that Avatar was shot in New Zealand. Yeah, but it doesn't feel as New Zealandy. Um, okay. The, the one I would like to take a moment to express my love for, which it's, it's a, a deep love that may not speak its name normally, is my love of Willow. Um, which was largely shot in New Zealand. We've asked you not to speak that name. <laughs> okay. I think it's usually underrated. I think Why? it's one of the most charming of the 80s fantasy um, sort of attempts at fantasy. Um, and I just I just really like it. I think, I think Warwick Davis is great in it. I think Val Kilmer has never been better. That's right, not even Iceman. Um, You've said a lot of controversial things. So I am, am I? Yeah. Mixing it up. Today. You weren't on last week's podcast. We've just been saving this stuff up. Well, last week I was hanging out with incredibly handsome VFX men all week, um, <laughs> which is a whole other story. And but you chose that over hanging out with incredibly handsome pod booth people? Yeah. I'm pointing yeah. at myself here, Helen. You are. I am. It's I literally am pointing at myself. <laughs> um, okay. So, so you were off doing that last week. Yeah. So do you have a stockpile? Of controversy. Of Helen's <laughs> controversial things to say. <laughs> so you come in right from the off, boom, Lord of the Rings is the best film uh, shot in New Zealand. Yeah. That's just That's just wrong. I thought you were going to ask if she's got a stockpile of hot VFX guys <laughs> and well, stop objectifying also. VFX <laughs> practitioners. They are uh, incredibly skilled people also. And I learned very interesting things, like there is a green screen shot in Interstellar. There mm. is. We were lied to. Is that right? Yeah, a single one. And you know those aren't their real faces? What? <laughs> They're finished in post. <laughs> all pixels. How do you know they weren't all just anti-circus? Oh! <gasps> 
you go. I think I've blown this thing wide open. All right, uh, Phil, before we come to you, I'm just going to tell you why. Okay? Bring it. Well, apart from the fact that, you know, as I've said already, uh, Heavenly Creatures. Heavenly Creatures is great. I do Brain love Brain Dead. Yeah. Bad mm. Taste. Beat the Feebles. All better films than Lord of the Rings. Uh, so, um, Yogi Bear. <laughs> X-Men Origins Wolverine. With ah, Ida, come on. With Ida Paddle. Lisa, Hang uh, on. X-Men Origins Wolverine was more set in Australia. It's, it, it, it shot in was the question. Shot, no, uh, shot, shot, in. In, shot yeah. in Australia yeah. as well. Uh, so, uh, many of the Chronicles of Narnia films. Many of them. <laughs> One, maybe? Possibly two? <laughs> all, all seven, because they made seven, because they were such huge hits. Uh, 30 Days of Night, but you went to... Mo- I went to 30 Days of Night. Didn't you go to Montreal for that, or did you, where did you go? No, 30 Days of Night was in New Zealand. Oh, okay. Um, it, was, it was a proper film set, because you had burning vampires jumping out of a burning building into fake snow. Ooh. And I was like, yes, this is the kind of artifice that I want to see on a movie set. Right, okay, that's interesting. Sadly, not the kind of movie I wanted to see. <laughs> but, you know. No, it's all right. It's all right. It's uh, all right. The piano. The piano. Ooh, the in piano. Ooh, and there's all the people playing plinkety, plinkety, plinky, and Harvey Keitel's waving his willy around. Ooh. Uh, oh, that's everyone's that's going my Neil impression. Oh. <laughs> it's been a Terrifying. while since I saw that one. What We Do in the Shadows is a very Kiwi film. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I loved it yeah, for it's that, for its Kiwiness. Um, it's I have I have New Zealand in-laws, so I have a strong affinity with New Zealand, and I love it very much. Um, film-wise, yeah, there's, there's a small film called In My Father's Den, which has got Matthew mm-hmm. McFadden in it, which was from 2004, um, which is set down in Otago, which is kind of the the Antarctic end of of, of the South Island, which is beautiful. Um, I guess Whale Rider. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. those yeah. Good movie. I did not realise those big Hollywood blockbusters you just mentioned, X Men, Origins, Wolverine, colon, whatever, were shot in New Zealand. Where were they shot? I, don't I, th- I think they basically oh. did the Canadian scenes in New Zealand. So when he's out in the wilderness with uh, what's her name, Lynn Thingy, oh. um, and then <laughs> Lynn Thingy. Sorry, I apologise. I have actually met her. She's lovely. Anyway, um, and then when <laughs> when they got into all the action stuff, they actually shot that on Cockatoo Island in Sydney Harbour. Oh wow. yeah. I've been there. There you go. Past it. I shot a <laughs> film in New Zealand. Did you? Kind of. Kind of. I got all um, pimped up. That's not the expression. Motion <laughs> captured up for the the to, to the Avatar soundstage. The so Avatar in the volume. It's interesting. So, uh, so you're saying Lord of the Rings. Phil, what are you saying definitively? Go on. Definitively. Definitively. What we do in the shadows. What we do in the shadows. Or once for warriors. Okay, Once We're Warriors, also a good film. I'm saying definitively then, I'm going to agree with both of you and say, right, if you want to have a question read out on the Empire Podcast, and why the hell wouldn't you, quite frankly, it'd be weird if you didn't, uh, do send them in via Twitter, at Empire Magazine is our address, use the hashtag Empire Podcast, and hey, use the hashtag first question. It might just help, you don't know. Uh, we're also on Facebook as Empire Magazine, and you can email us, podcast at empireonline.com. Come back next week, because we have a cracking question that we held back this week, because sadly... We don't have time this week. Okay, time now for our first guest. Douglas Booth has been on the pod before, twice, in fact. We liked him so much when he came in for the Rad Club and the chaos of a six-person interview. And earlier, Helen talked to him for uh, Romeo and Julie. Uh, so we liked him so much, we decided to have him back at the first opportunity. And that opportunity is now here, for he is cutting it up, something rotten this week, as a debauched bado in the Wachowskis' Jupiter Ascending. And he popped in to talk to Phil... And myself. Enjoy. 
Uh, we're delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast for the third time by Douglas Booth. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Good, very good, well. good. Three times, which Three I think times. means we get Do to I keep get a you. badge or something? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we should get a badge. Who's who's holds the um, record? Do You've, we know? You're currently you tied. You do now. I'm, am I tied? You're tied. You're tied with Simon Pegg. Oh, that, oh, that's not bad, is it? That's not bad at all. Not bad at all. Obviously, this time we're talking about Jupiter Ascending. Jupiter Ascending, yes. Last time it was uh, chaotic with about every single member of the cast yeah. in the Mad Club. A massive round table. Yeah. yeah. But this time, uh, talking about Jupiter Ascending and I guess the best character name of your career so Ti- far. Titus Abrasics, yeah. yeah. It's not bad, is it? It's kind of, it's out there, but you would expect nothing less from the Wachowskis. Do you know how to play a character like that from the minute you see the name? Do you know, when you see the name, it's like, I know who this guy is. No, I did. I, I wish I did. That would make my life a lot easier. I, I suppose this this character was very much sort of, you know, the, the Wachowskis had created a world for me for this character. They very much came and said, okay, this is your spaceship. It's going to look like this. This is what we've thought. This these this is what your um your your servant women are going to look like. This is what this is. You know, so you kind of, they they created a world for my character to live in, and then I just had to create sort of the character from inside that. You know, who is this guy and why is he doing this? That's pretty excellent, though. The first thing they say is, this is your spaceship. Yes, that's pretty cool, right? <laughs> These are your women. I know, and especially when they go, it, we want it to be sort of like a goth, cross between a gothic cathedral and the Playboy Mansion. I was like, great, oh, I'm in. Okay. I'm in. The film reunites you with Eddie Redman. I don't know if you actually work with him in um, Pillars of the Earth because you were perhaps. I was, uh, yeah, no, I, I, I was, yeah, I was just alive, alive in one scene, killed in the next, and a ghost <laughs> in the third. Um, so I, I wasn't a significant role in that. But um, no, I, I, I was in Budapest for about three weeks, and um, we had a great time. I remember I went over, and I think I was 16 at the time, and um, yeah, just like, there were all these grown-up actors, and I think they were like, bloody hell, this 16-year-old drinks, 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 drinks quick, quickly as us. And uh, no, it was good fun. Because, <laughs> of course, he went to Eton, famously. Did he have any thoughts on the Riot Club? He he did actually. I mean, I probably look at my text. I think he really enjoyed. It, I think he was very intrigued to to, to watch it, as you can imagine. Um, but yeah, I, I probably could look up my text and get Eddie Redmayne's review. But <laughs> do it. <laughs> did no, you... no, yeah, but he really. Yeah, no, he he was very interested in it. Yeah, yeah. If you ask him to give it a star rating and maybe just like a plot and a verdict at the uh, at the front and the back, we will print that review. Okay. In the next <laughs> issue of Empire. Yeah. And, uh, okay. I'll look it up. I'll see how that goes. Uh, you have a very memorable. It's not your uh, your character's introduction in this movie, but it is a very memorable scene where um, it's basically a, a, a space orgy. Yes. Essentially, it is. Yes, but it is a space orgy. That's yeah. exactly. I mean, and and I mean, Eddie did as well. We worked out pretty hard for this film. Went to the gym every day. You know, I was like, and often we weren't acting together. So we'd be like. Oh, how's your spaceship? Oh, that's all right. How's your spaceship? Oh, it's great. Okay, cool. Um, so we were like getting straight, but then ultimately I had so many, it's okay, cry me a river, but I had so many models like draped over me that actually you couldn't see any of my naked bodies. <laughs> I, I could have just, I could have just, I could have just eaten like chips for the last eight, you know, three months anyway. But um, it was, it was actually a really tricky scene to film because I, they kind of got this little plastic chair, like a normal like chair you sat in when you're at school and then they cut, cut, around my bottom like as small a chair as possible and I had to kind of balance on that and then they had it on this kind of obviously all greened out lever that this you know big old grip would like push up and then I would be sort of floating up there and, and because there was nothing supporting my legs you really you know you had to use all your tone muscles that actually pretty hard it was all doing the Sandra Bullock sort of floating <laughs> like this and they descended all these models um all these models who were like spliced, a half was half snake human, half swan human, uh-huh. and then they were sort of all just floating around. But these, some of these models were crying, poor things. It was, they, the harnesses, it was pretty, it took oh a long God. time. The Wachowskis shot the shit out of that. How um, long were you up there for? 
about eight hours Ouch. Uh, through through the day, and it, it appears for about. Eight, you know, ten seconds. And you just get glimpses of it. You just get enough to suggest just, that it's a space orgy. Yeah. Yes, just enough. But uh yeah. twelve A. Will we get to see the abs in a say a DVD extra or deleted I'm scene? I'm hoping so. I mean, as I said, they shot a lot a lot of that scene. I actually got, maybe I should get Lana Lana and Addy to cut together like a sort of an extended version of that scene. Just you getting in and out of the chair, essentially. In, in, yeah, in and out of the chair. That was never very glamorous. I was in some sort of like <laughs> nude thong and like like some sort of grips like looking at me going like what is going on so when they all come up and go oh hey, hey good day good day i'm like no not good day this hurts um <laughs> but yeah the sacrifices of the filmmaking sac- yeah. so when they say when they called rap on the day or cut on the scene finally you basically staggered away all the women were in tears it was just it, it, was, it, was, it was it was a mess it was a full-on mess but but lots of them they have you know all the maidens you they had this kind of really tight latex costumes on and they literally had to lube them into it, lube them into it. So um, they couldn't get it on without literally fully lubing up. Wow. Yeah. Okay. That's it's lowering the tone there. <laughs> you actually raised the tone from <laughs> yeah. our podcast. The tone of this podcast couldn't get any lower, uh, quite frankly. But uh, uh, Titus is an interesting guy. So he has a space orgies and an incredible line in space jumpers as well. Uh, there's, a, there's a scene where you appear later on, you have this incredible sort of space M&S jumper going on, which is, yeah. how much input did you get into the costumes? Or is it literally just, this is what you're wearing, and there you go. I didn't get too much input yeah. necessarily. I, I, I definitely ha- like kind of would voice opinions, but Kim Barrett did an amazing job, and they had, they had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people working in that costume department. Like, more people working in that costume department than an independent film has working in every department. Uh, they just had to make, they made everything from scratch, you know. They'd make outfits and then discard them if they weren't right. The Wachowskis are so detail-orientated. Everything has to pass by them, you know, whether it be what type of bead is on something. They are so detailed in that. So, um, you know, it was, it was, it was an, uh, kind of an amazing kind of process to go through to get to those costumes. But, yeah, they, it, yeah it, I'm, I didn't have too much input in that. Um, IMDb Bunker that we, is a thing we do where we ask people about trivia from films. One of the bits of trivia they have is that a kissing scene that you shot with Emma Watson, um, you shot so many times that you ended up with... Ble- she had bleeding lips and yes, you had that is true. a heavy cold and... I, I had a cold. That's that right? no? That no cold, but bleeding lips was true. They just... They were just... Um, we had to, like, run into each other and kind of go... Darren wanted to just go straight into, like, sort of embrace and... Um, uh, maybe my spatial awareness or her spatial awareness you just crashed into a face just split each other's lips by the end of it yeah uncomfortable space orgies <laughs> and, and there, was a se- there was a sex scene between me and Emma and Noah that was cut as well <laughs> guys never get to see that oh my lord <laughs> there you go and uh, <laughs> I don't know where to go from where for, sorry <laughs> in terms of Jupiter Ascending there's been a lot made about how far Eddie pushes his performance yeah um, where were you the first time you saw what he was going to do and what was your reaction? I can't really remember. I, I suppose it must have been the read-through, but I don't know whether that was something he developed from the time we did a read-through to, to doing it. Um, uh, but again, the, we, I shot the, um, that, that, that scene, the only scene we're really in together, I shot, we shot bizarrely, of course, as all things happen with movies, shot at the end. So I never really understood where, where that came from. You'd have to ask him, I suppose. But, okay. um, but I, I wasn't necessarily shocked. I, just thought, I thought it was pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. He really goes for it. I mean, he go, that's the thing. I mean, it's just great. This is what I love about this film. It's just, I feel like everyone had a lot of fun. It's big, it's fun, it's exciting. And, and you know, obviously he's taking things very seriously right now because he's, you know, 
um, hopefully, fingers crossed for Eddie going to win an Oscar. But it's just, yeah, no, it's just good fun to see him sort of go out there and just like enjoy it and just play that really kind of, you know, big villain. Yeah. But do you get notes from uh, Andy and Lana on how to play the thing tonally? So you don't go too far into camp, you don't tip it into Flesh, uh, Fla- Flesh Gordon trilogy, Flash, yeah. uh, Flesh Gordon territory, uh, or Flash Gordon territory, but at the same time you don't want to play it so poor face that it just doesn't work. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think they give you the free, I think that's an act, actor's choice ultimately, but I mean, they've written the script and they, they really wanted to enjoy it. I remember a lot of it was coming from, if you heard them enjoying it, laughing, that, you know, they wanted people to laugh in the scenes, they wanted people to kind of enjoy it. It wasn't, you know, they took it seriously t- to a certain extent, but they I don't think they were necessarily shying away from it being campy at all. You mm. know, there were, there were moments where they were just, you know, I knew it would go well if they were just like sniggering and laughing at the way Titus was being mischievous or this and that. That You know, they wanted that kind of sense of fun within it. And uh, Titus is not a guy who should be believed necessarily. There's a great line you have about lies. Yes. Uh, is, that, is that, you know, are you a person who should be believed? Have you lied to come at this podcast? Have I, have I lied? Have you lied since you started this started podcast? Started this podcast. I don't think, think back, think I, carefully. I don't think I have. There will be a test. There will be. T- I think I've been pretty honest. Um, yeah, no, I think I've been pretty honest. But yes, no, he does have quite a cool, cool line. Was it lies and lies are a necessity? They are uh, the meaning of life and source. Like it's something like something. That, yeah. yeah, meaning of life and hope. Uh, lies the only reason I get out of bed. That's it. That's it. Lies. Yeah. <laughs> lies are sometimes the only reason I get out of bed. And he whispers it in Channing's ear. Yeah, does that uh, does that apply to you? Your no, life? definitely. No? I actually I despise lies personally. But aren't you know? Don't actors just lie for a living? That's that's no, good deep. No, no we, we tell the truth. Oh really? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was curious. You've been acting since well for an awful long time. What's been the strangest thing you've been asked to do in an audition? So one of my f- first thought. This shows how long this movie has taken to come to fruition. Uh, one of my first auditions was for George Miller for Mad Max. And he, he, how he gets people to audition is to come in and just tell a, an upsetting story about their life. Yeah, really? It. Yeah. Or tell a sad story, tell us, you know. So very personal and, you know, it's okay to cry, that sort of stuff. So which, which is quite sort of, you know, that's... Other weird things in auditions, I'm not sure, like Darren, like when I auditioned with Darren, it was very much, you know, he sat there opposite me, sort of leaning forward, you know, so it was only about a metre away from my face and... Just get me to do the scene over and over again, and he just but just challenged me, going, "Okay, do it like this. Just the same thing. Now do it like that. Now do it like this. Just like it was just like he was like testing your your acting muscles. It was okay. Yeah. Now now make her feel like this. Now do this. You know, what I mean, just keeping you on your toes. That was kind of intense. Other than that, never n- nothing too weird. I think girls sometimes get weirder things. You know. Yeah. No one, no one's ever told me to like whip off my clothes or anything. We had Imogen Poots came on the podcast and told us about a time she was asked to to imagine she was in labour for an audition, which yeah. is. Yeah, like you say. Again, like Unbroken. I remember I made a tape for Unbroken, and um, I think Angelina Jolie wanted you to sort of uh, had to imagine you were in a cage, sort of like like in a tiny cramped space, like almost like coffin space, sort of being traumatized by that. And then again, you had to tell a story, like the story of something you've overcome. Yeah, Um, yeah. So it's all very bespoke audition pieces. Sometimes, sometimes, yeah, yeah. When you were breaking in the industry, did you have an audition piece that you had prepared, the one that was like the catch-all that you, <laughs> that you, you brought with you? No, 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 nothing like that. Um, I remember when I auditioned to play Boy George and Worried About the Boy, they were like, bring a hat that is like Boy George's hat. 
uh, you know, I was like, okay, uh, right. And the only thing I had was a happy birthday cake hat with candles on the top. <laughs> big, big, big velvet hat. Uh, well, somehow, and it did kind of have the right kind of rim to sort of look like it could be his. And I yeah. know it worked. I got the job. And then, and then I did the 24 hour plays, and they said, bring a prop. I don't know if you know about the 24-hour plays. Yeah, Kevin yeah. Spacey puts it on to raise money for the old Vic. And I brought my happy birthday hat because it's been like a good luck charm because it got me one of my first lead performance. I bring it and you, know, they, you need to bring props to a sort of inspire, inspire plays. No one used it, but they still auctioned off my prop anyway. It's my beloved hat. They still, they didn't use it to inspire a play, but they still auctioned it off. It helped with the refurbishment of the old Vic. Absolutely. All for a good cause. All for a good cause. All for a good cause. And uh, coming up next, you have Pride and Prejudice. And Zombies. And Zombies. Yes. Cannot stress that end bit enough. And zombies. And zombies. Uh, how much zombie killing do you get to do in this one? Uh, you know what? Not enough zombie killing. <laughs> um, but no, this, 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 is, this is a film I'm excited about. I think it's going to be... I mean, it's so hard to understand tonally what it's going to be, you know, even yeah. for us going into it. But, you know, David O. Russell did the, did the original screenplay um, and it was, you know, it was brilliant. And Burr Steers came along and had a great vision for it to direct it. You know, he did It Could Be Goes Down. And, yeah, yeah. And he had a really good vision for it. And we just had an amazing time. And the great thing about it is that all the beats of Pride and Prejudice stand up. You know, it's not as normal a zombie film where you've got someone chasing someone from A to B or someone trying to, like, what was he trying to save his family? Or It's really just about how will the upper classes survive during the most bizarre circumstances? How will Pride and Prejudice continue to happen? That story, as mm-hmm. we know it, continue to play out but just set amongst 70 years of zombie plague. Um, <laughs> and it's great. And, you know, you've got, you've got an amazing young cast. You know, you've got Lily James, you know, yeah. you, you've got Jack Houston, you've got Matt Smith, you've got... Um, who else have you got? You've got Charles Dance, Lena Headey. It's just, it's just really... I, 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 I've got high hopes for it, hmm. and it, I feel like hopefully you will enjoy it too. Can we expect a Douglas Booth zombie orgy Ooh. in Pride and Prejudice and Zombies? You're going to have to go and uh, go to cinema. <laughs> 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 on that bombshell. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. Thanks Absolute so much pleasure. for Thanks so much. Thank you. Is it like World Cups? Do you get to keep him? <laughs> After three. <laughs> I wonder if facilities might have a problem with that. You seem to have a Douglas Booth just standing there doing nothing. What's, what's that about? Oh, sorry about that. We'll, we'll, ha- we'll have it moved. We've got lovely new shelves in our new, in our new office. We do. We moved this week. We moved, uh, we moved up floors, didn't we? Hmm. Yeah, we could put him on the on one of the top shelves. It reminded Finally me of Romeo and Juliet, kind of metaphoric, physically if not metaphorically. Time for some movie news. That was lovely, Douglas Booth. Time for movie news. Um, hey, by the way, while we're talking about movie news, have you picked up the new issue of Vampire yet? Have you bought it, Phil? Um, Helen? Uh, no, uh, and I have to buy it because none of you bastards have put me on the <laughs> mailing list. I've Ten a... years we were, we were together, people. Ten years. Well, I'm sure if you just tell me your address, we'll put you on the mailing list. Just you know, just say it now. Just say your <laughs> say your address now, your postcode and your phone number, and I'll see what happens. <laughs> Shall we you'll see what happens? I, I guess I could see what happens at that point. Yeah. Um, uh, pick up the new issue of Vampire. It's great. It's got Avengers in it and other things that aren't Avengers. If that's not your bag, it's three ninety nine. All good and evil news agents. But the big news of the week uh, in a in a week that doesn't really have a lot of big news is that Gareth Edwards' standalone Star Wars movie is is gathering pace. Yes. Uh, it's doing the Kessel Run in 15 parsecs. Hope to get it down to 12 by the time it's released. Um, <laughs> Felicity Jones mm. is apparently in final talks to star in this. And the rumour, the scuttlebutt, has it that she will be playing a young Princess Leia. Awesome. Oh, no, is that the scuttlebutt? Because That's I've heard scuttlebutt. other scuttlebutts. Oh, tell us, tell us, Helen, tell us. 
Um, there is another rumour that she may be playing a bounty hunter who's already on screen in Star Wars Rebels, which, as we know, is canon, um, and that she might be playing the character of uh, Sabine Wren, who's one of the Mandalorians. Um, she appears in that in that series, uh, and this would be her slightly down the line, is the theory. This could not be accompanied by a larger rumour light <laughs> flashing. It, like, there is not enough salt in all the seven seas. That's no rumour. To take It's this. a space station. <laughs> but that, that, is, that is what I have heard. I think either of those should be accompanied by a, a gigantic rumour sign and, uh, and, frankly, a big question mark. But in any case... Um, She's cool. Uh, she's doing very well at the moment, obviously getting rightly getting lots and lots of praise for her performance in The Theory of Everything. Um, so this would be a chance for her to do something actiony. It's interesting, uh, Tatiana Maslany from Orphan Black, which is a terrific show you should be watching if you're not, mm-hmm. was talked about this for a very long time. And it sounds like, you know, that there's a bit of an action element to it. So I think Felicity Jones will presumably be hitting the hitting the mats and hitting the gym pretty mm. soon to uh, to action up for it. Because the other person in line was was apparently Rooney Mara, who's also kind of got a darky, action-y sort of a side to her. Mm. She's quite a different sort of type of actress from those two, really. Yeah, I would have thought so too. So less of the dark, the dark hue, perhaps. But maybe they want someone who hasn't done that before, so it feels fresher. I think they wanted someone who was in the archers, so they can <laughs> get that universe, universe crossover. Beep. Mm? Is she the first person from the Archers to cross over into the Star Wars universe? Please my, let us know, people. Yeah, my knowledge of the Archers cast is not that great. Or indeed any cast. <laughs> um, I, I kind of, I, uh, I hope she is. I Actually, I'm a bit torn about this. In terms of, is she, if she's Princess Leia, we've said in the podcast before that I'm not sure that they should go there necessarily. Mm. On the other hand, I can see her being a young Princess Leia, posh and quite haughty and fiery and, you know, Mixing it with the bureaucratics, you know, people on Alderaan. Yeah, you can make me. You can make me do that. Up yours, Johnny. Paperwork, Johnny. Yeah, yeah. Ooh, Johnny Paperclip. <laughs> if that is your real name. If, if, if the bad guy is called Johnny Paperwork, that is the best thing that Star Wars has done since I don't know R two D two. That's incredible. Sure, I'm sure Gareth Edwards is listening. Um, and if if you are, sir, hello. Uh, please make that happen, Johnny Paperwork. Um, but also, I'm a little bit sad about it. You know, she's probably not going to win an Oscar, but she's, you know, now at this point in her career where she's Oscar nominated and being recognised as this fantastic actress, which we've recognised for a while. Uh, but now the world is finally catching on. And the, the main thing about if she commits to Star Wars, I'm worried that she won't be able to play the black cat in um, <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a future Spider-Man instalment, which, mm. you know, I think we, we all came out of Amazing Spider-Man <laughs> going... <laughs> I really want to see more of of Felicia. I want to know more about her. I want to see where she goes in future installments. Um, (laughs) I'm sure all of us came out of The Amazing Spider-Man 2 thinking I want to see more. I mean, just generally. Well, we couldn't possibly have seen less. (laughs) So I think that would would be the, the one shame. Yeah, Felicity Jones in Star Wars. Why did I sound? Why did they make that sound as if she died? Felicity Just Jones. a moment. A moment. <laughs> usually that's, that's my tone of voice for her. And they died. Taken, <laughs> Taken in her prime. Taken in her prime. And plunged into Pinewood. an epic franchise. Plunged into Pinewood. <laughs> Not literally Pinewood. A Pinewood coffin. <laughs> I have to say there were two trailers. I know we try not to talk about trailers, visual medium, audio medium, mm-hmm. all that. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were two trailers that 
that could not have made me more delighted to be alive in the world at this time. Uh, I genuinely, I can't express how happy I am about these trailers. Uh, Magic Mike XXL was the first. Yes. Um, which, in a flashback to Flashdance, which we should really, a phrase we should really have more occasion to use, um, starts <laughs> off with Magic Mike welding to the tune of Genuine's Pony. Um, and it gets um, ridiculous and more and more gratuitous from there. Uh, just just for his little spin when he introduces himself in the kitchen at the end, yeah. this would be a must-see trailer. And frankly, it's it's jumped straight up the list of my must-see films this year, which now look like number one Avengers, joint second place, Magic Mike XXL and Fast and Furious 7. And then is this your head else. talking, Helen? It is, because it's a really interesting deconstruction of modern uh, uh-huh. masculinity. Both of them, in fact. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Fast and Furious 7 looks even more bananas it does. than the previous ones. It does. There's a, there's a bit where a, a car drives out of one skyscraper, not the bottom, the top, <laughs> and, and flies through the air into <clears throat> another skyscraper where, where not only does it fly, uh, crash through a window, it manages to demolish a collection of terracotta warriors <laughs> at, at the same time. Again, w- w- what more could we ask for from our cinema than that? That's the question, isn't it? It is the question. <laughs> like, where do we begin? I don't. I don't know. Uh, yeah, the Ma- Fast and Furious Seven. I'm excited about it. Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting to see how that one turns out. The um, Stath versus the Rock. I've got yes. What is yes. it called? It's called. It's called Fast and Furious Seven over here, mm-hmm. right? And in the states, it's called Furious Seven. Uh, and over here, Fast. Five was called Fast and Furious Five Real, Real Heist, Heist. Uh-huh. and then it was called Fast and Furious Six back in the states, wasn't it? They didn't call it Fast Six. I think they actually called it Fast and Furious Six. And then should have been the ampersand six. Really. It should have been ampersand six. Quite frankly, it's uh, mm. they're, they're not thinking this through. No, they really aren't. Um, but there is a great line in the trailer where Vin Diesel says something along the lines of "It's not enough to be fast anymore," and I really wanted him to then say, "We also <laughs> have to be furious." We also have to be and. <laughs> Sadly, no. <laughs> it's well, not enough to be fast. It's anymore. nutty. The, the Super Bowl weekend is always a big one for new trailers. And the latest Jurassic World trailer was decent looking, I thought. We discovered more of Chris Pratt's mm. training, of, oh, train. training of velociraptors. You've been watching Magic Mike again, Chris. Um, yes, Which we is did. not something that I'm wildly impressed by as a concept, but... Why? This is interesting. It seemed I, to be on the, on the, on the, on the Twitter... The other day, whenever that, that Super Bowl spot came out, mm. there seemed to be a divide between people who think that Chris Pratt training Raptors is either the coolest thing in the world or the dumbest thing in the world. And you clearly... I'm in the dumb camp on that one. You're in the dumb camp, but, which is rare for you, Phil. But there's an interesting thing here, isn't there, potentially? Because if they're saying that the, the big news about Indomitus Rex, which is the new big developed dinosaur that we're going to see in this film, the big news about him or it is that it hunts for sport... That presumably puts it at odds with the existing dinosaurs. And the idea would be, if the raptors are fed, that they're not hunting you, potentially, maybe. maybe. Yeah. So, maybe if you keep your raptors fed, that you can actually train them? Well, yes. But, also, I think the first Jurassic Park, in particular, mm. establishes that raptors are absolute bellends. <laughs> and they don't hunt for food. They hunt, they hunt for sport. They hunt because it's fun. They hunt because they want to see bob pecks inside spread all over on the outside. Mm. Mm. And I thought he smelled bad on the outside. That's my impression of a raptor dinner impression of Han Solo, if if you wanted to know what that was. (laughs) So 
Yeah, that's kind yeah. of interesting. But it also establishes that they're really smart. They're whip smart. Mm. So you could start teaching them things, I guess. You could start. And um, I remember reading an interview whenever the, the first shredder came out with an animal expert who, who says it is possible to train creatures of a certain intelligence. It is possible. And obviously dolphins, uh, lions, tigers. And they will turn on you. Uh, you know, they can turn on you. They have that capacity. And I'm sure at some point the raptors will go, ha ha, ha ha, Chris Pratt. We loved Guardians of the Galaxy, but honestly, mate, we're going to try and eat you now. Um, and um, but I think it's in, I'm kind of on board with that. Yeah, maybe that'll happen. The image of Pratt on a motorcycle, you know, surrounded by the Raptors. Helen speaking with your head. What does that do for you? <laughs> that is that is all kinds of okay. <laughs> <laughs> Stick that in your poster, Universal. Um, I like that stuff. I like the stuff. Uh, I like that trailer this week. I like the Magic Mike XXL trailer. It's fine. Didn't really do a lot for me. I left my wife immediately, but I don't. Really, no. <laughs> the feelings I'm feeling right now are of conflict. Anyway, should we move on to the next one? Chris, um, Chris stop doing crunches. Come on, Chris. Sit down. You are looking discernibly more ripped. I just... Since I just, Monday. I want to dance, guys. <laughs> Don't let us stop you. I think I should Gotta go. Dance. <laughs> yeah. uh, should we talk about John Wick 2? I haven't seen John Wick 1 yet. I've seen John Wick 1. I'm excited about it. I want to see it. I liked John Wick 1. Um, it's good fun. If you're internet savvy and you know how to do that, you know, circumventing thing and you can, you know, with the IP address and whatnot, uh, it's on uh, US iTunes. I saw it in the cinema mm. in the States. Mm. I'm above board. Uh, but it is out there. It, it comes out here in April. April 10th. Long after it's been on DVD and Blu-ray in the States, which is a baffling decision, but there you go. <clears throat> it's, it's good fun. I bring a joke from James Dyer, who's seen this film, and I promised him that I would butcher it. Oh, God. So here we go. Um, he said, if you've seen Equalizer, you'll know that it finishes with a big showdown in a kind of American equivalent of being q mm-hmm. Yes. Does the John Wick movie end oh, with no. a big oh, showdown oh. in WH Smith's? Oh, no, hold on. No, no, no. Really, no, really got that wrong. That. You've got that wrong. <laughs> in Wicks. In Wicks. Hey. In Wicks. Does that happen? No. No. But the sequel should be that he gets cloned and there's loads of them and then you could literally call it John Wicks. And then you get a hell of a lot of sponsorship that basically pay your entire, entire budget and have you in the black before the film was even released. It's amazing. It's all coming together. There you go. There you go. So, that's so they've, they've already greened out the sequel. Even though this one was a little bit, took a bit of a meandering road to the screen, didn't it? It was a little delayed. A little bit. A little delayed. A little and bit. there was a bit of bad odour around it. But yeah, it seems to be... You know, so, it's interesting because this one made it only made about fifty million in the states, but it has already an incredible cult around it. There's a lot of people on Twitter who absolutely adore John Wick, and the action scenes are fantastic, and Keanu is is great in it. We'll we'll, we'll review it properly in in April, but um, it's interesting. It is a character that I I did want to see more of, and so hopefully we will get that. Uh, well, you'd hope you'd see that motion. But it's interesting, the directors of that movie, uh, David Leach and Chance Tehelski, <clears throat> are long-time stuntmen, and um, one of them in particular is, has been Keanu Reeves' stunt double for years, going back to The Matrix. And now they're breaking out as directors in their own right, and they're going to direct Chris Pratt in Cowboy Ninja Viking, which is uh, coming out, I don't know, 2016, something like mm-hmm. that. So that's uh, that's very interesting to see them getting their, their career boost as well. Uh, we done with movie news? Should we move on? Let's move on. Sure. Let's move on to Tyler Smelliver, shall we? We love Titus Welliver. He's a, he's one of the 27 presenters. He's a strong, sturdy character actor who's paid his dues down the years and down the cast list. He delivered our line of the year last year in Transformers Age of Extinction. That line, of course, was 
My face is my warrant. My face is my warrant. Absolute barking nonsense that he came up with himself on set, funnily enough. Uh, and now he's got his reward for paying those dues as Hieronymus, yes, Hieronymus, a.k.a. Harry Bosch, in the Amazon instant video series Bosch, based on the best-selling Michael Connolly novels. Uh, he came in this week to talk to Ali Plum. Enjoy. It is an absolute pleasure to have your voice with us on the Empire Podcast, because when I spoke to you last, it was over the phone. And I think I may have embarrassed you by saying you're one of my favourite voices. It's a huge compliment. It's just, it's just And I'm needy. I want any compliment I can get. Well, I'll give you another one. I may have mentioned, maybe Chris may have, because Chris, my colleague, yeah. I know spoke to you for the review of the year 2014, uh, because he fell in love with your line from Transformers Age of Extinction, my face is my warrant. It is. So we called you up. Yes. And had to hear the story about it. But he may have mentioned to you that you are one of our 27 percenters, which is somebody by whose presence any film, TV show, or whatever, is immediately 27 percent better. If I could get a T-shirt that had that on the front very prominently displayed, I will walk around London saying, by the way, 27 percent here. Being a 27 percenter, you're one of those people that is great in every single thing he does, including Bosch here. But sometimes, I'm guessing, people don't quite know where to place you. Yeah. What do people most mistake you for? Who do they mistake you for, and where do they place you when they see you? James Nesbitt. Yeah, and if you put our pictures together, we look nothing alike. But I'm flattered by the comparison because he happens to be one of my absolute favorite actors. I was just trying to pitch Michael Connolly on Bosch coming, chasing a case to London, and having uh, Nesbitt be like a Scotland Yard guy, and having them, you know... Busting out in, in London with some geezers, right? Like, you've got a lot of balls coming here, Bosch. Bosch. You know, snort LA. You're in London. Also, with the word Bosch, as we discussed previously. Yeah, Bosch. What do you know about Bosch? It's finished, right? It's done. Bish, bash. Bish, bash, Bosch. I, to be fair, have you ever been in the same room together, you and James Nesbitt? No. Ah, it may end the world. Yeah. yeah we can't have that. Yeah. Bosch, though, going back to Bosch, I saw the pilot back in June... It's part of the Amazon Prime thing. Have you seen the 2.0, though? I've not seen the 2.0. What's the 2.0? Well, we, we did a fair amount of reshooting. We Interesting. had to do some recasting because some of the actors that were sort of recurring had gotten other gigs, and we sort of retooled the pilot. And I think it's, uh, I mean, I was more than happy with the original pilot, but we've changed it a bit, and I think it's stronger than, than it was, in fact. And you were first contacted about whether you'd be willing to be part of this project when you were shooting Age of Extinction, is that right? That's correct, yes. So was that, because were you a fan of the books before you, you heard about this? I'd only read one of them, and it was several years before, but I remember the experience and really liking the character of Bosch. So when the script came across my desk, I, I mean, I read it and so quickly mm. um, and immediately called my manager and said, I don't want to want this too much, but when can we, you know, how, how do we try and make this happen. But it wasn't like you were reading the book going, you know what, that could be me, I think. No, I never, you know, it's funny. I didn't, I didn't have that experience. And, uh, of course, I wasn't aware of the fact that Michael had sold the film rights and had been tied up and, you yeah, know. Yeah, that's a crazy story. In hell. It? And now it's back and, you know, thankfully it's, it's being realized properly. Yeah, and uh, we were talking earlier, uh, Chris and I, about how, a streaming service that can, can show all of these and have the story of a character like Bosch over several episodes mm -hmm. makes so much more sense than it would have been perhaps for a film. Yeah. Um, would you say that that's kind of where maybe 
maybe not your career generally, but do you see actors and acting becoming more part of like the streaming world and that's just part of the everyday bread and butter of what it is to be an actor now? Well, it's happening. It is happening more and more. I mean, years ago, this was something that was uh, put out there as, as uh, new media saying, well, we don't know much about it, but we, it's here and it's, and, it's, and it's in forward motion. And I think what it really does ultimately for the marketplace is that it, it raises the bar of competition. So you have, um, you know, you have more outlets mm -hmm. and which is great for, um, writers and directors and producers and actors. Um, it's, uh, you know, also you have, uh, you, know, you can take more liberties creatively, obviously, because you're not restricted by standards and practices of network television or advertisers and stuff and, like yeah, that. Yeah. And you don't have to mess about with that. And it was a pretty crazy story what happened with the rights. It was part of Paramount. This is, what, 17 or 18 books strong, this mm -hmm. series. And now it's finally found its home. Do you feel a sense of trepidation or fear that you are embodying so many millions of people's view of how they view Bosch? You know, one could definitely be intimidated and hamstrung by that. But because the fact that we haven't tried to change something that's already really mm. well done... Um, you know, or sex it up for lack of a better term, because that happens all too often is that they take, you know, the source material and change it. And, you know, I'm not running around in Brioni suits and I'm not driving an Aston Martin. Not that I wouldn't like to drive an Aston Martin, but, you know, it ain't broke, so no need to fix it. And so in that regard, whenever you're taking a character, particularly an iconic character from literature, we all have create our own sort of prejudice in what a character will look like. I mean, obviously here in the UK, it's the whole Bond conundrum, right? And we go through this all the time. I, I happen to think, and I know that uh, people share this with me, is that you know Daniel Craig is a fantastic James Bond. He fully embodies Bond. Um, you know, George Lazenby. Yeah. <laughs> Not bad, though. Still. Yeah. It's still, you know what, that's a go-to. I, I like Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Great film. Of course, it doesn't hurt that you have Diana Rigg. I found when I was watching the pilot that there was this great music. Your character loves this, yeah. this certain music. Do you have to brush up? No, I think, you know, I mean, I always sort of create a little soundtrack for, for every character that I play. I mean, we call it inspirational music or whatever, but I'm also a big... Uh, consumer of jazz so it's cool. not a giant leap for me i mean i've always listened to a lot of jazz so i share that with harry but i'm I, but i'm not limited to that i mean I, sure. I love all kinds of music i've been asking a lot of people this recently after i and this is a bit of a name drop i was speaking to johnny depp and he happened to mention that one of his Did you just drop a name big one clanger all right but he happened to mention that he got this directorial note which was he was on top of a car and they said you know when a dog's in a pool and he can't get out that what is the weirdest or the most memorable directorial note you've ever had in your career? It's very easy. I won't mention the director, but I literally one time was meeting with the director and was doing a reading for him. And, uh, and it was several times that I'd gone back and read and read and read. And, and um, he said to me, all right, um, let's do it again. And this time, um, give me a different color. And I said to him, okay, well, that's a little obtuse but uh, why don't you pick a color? And he said, no, you pick a color. So I just did the scene again, and then he went, what, what was the color? And I said, brown, let's try another color. And I, I finally kind of lost my temper a little bit, and I said, just give me a fucking color, and I'll see what I can do. Needless to say, I'm not in that film. <laughs> 
<laughs> but see, now... To be a, fair, for a DreamWorks yeah, a animation, dog, why did that happen? Yeah, but a dog trying to get out of a pool, that's sort of actable. You have a sense yeah? of panic that's something... Yeah, brown. Give me another color. I was thinking more yellow. Yeah, or fuchsia. Yeah, you'll never see me playing the color fuchsia as Harry Bosch. No, that's great to hear. I'm very, very beige. Because you were telling me on the phone that you were asked, hey, would you like to be on Sons of Anarchy? You need to be on a plane in, what was it, a day or two yeah, days? Yeah, it was a day, literally. Can, yeah, can you do a Belfast accent? And uh, I said, well, uh, you know, I have a good dialect guy I can go to. And so when, when do I start work? You're on a plane tomorrow. So, um, you know, here and now on the record, because that, the, the accent has been uh, maligned uh, occasionally by some um, sort of uh, mean-spirited Twitter people, uh, clearly, um, you know, unemployed Irish actors coming after me. Understandable. To which I, I, I don't respond, but I would say, uh, look, I did... <laughs> I mean, I get chided by even close friends of mine and, and family members who are, who, who are from Ireland who would, literally would say, like, yeah, in the episode last night, uh, you were in um, Belfast, and then your accent sort of, you were a carryman for a, a bit, and then uh, <laughs> and I would just say, what do you want, right? I, I mean, the one thing I really attempted to, to do was to try to stay as far away from the Lucky Charms commercials, and, <laughs> you know, if I managed that. Uh, in the meantime, if I offended anyone from the old country, um, sorry, but piss off. <laughs> I do like the idea of the director going, could we have a little bit more Lucky Charms there? Can we just yeah, have yeah. A, just a smidge? <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, give us, give us John Wayne and the Quiet Man. When you're in the UK, what is it you like to do? When you're in London, is there a particular place you like to go? Is there a... British Museum. Oh, great. Got to go there and, and have a day. Although I know my wife isn't going to let that happen. I think I'll get a quarter of a day and the rest of it will be us sort of bouncing about town and doing some shopping. And we have, we have friends here as well to visit. But that's, for me, every time I'm in London, I must go there. That is such a great answer to that question. Oh, it's the best museum in the world. Do you have a particular place you like to go to in there because there's so much going on well there is a lot going on but this time i'm gonna you know for obvious reasons i'm gonna go and take a look at the bosch paintings so yeah i mean i i, I could spend days there but um i just I, I i love the museum and they chuck you out at nighttime as well yeah they do they but do, i just yeah. like to kind of wander about there mm. you know and just sort of take it all in and when you are in the uk talking about tv and the, and the state of it do you find yourself watching a lot of British TV? Is there any particular British TV that strikes your fancy? Do you well, ever... I grew up. I, I, I grew up with with a lot with a lot of. I mean, you know, I'm a huge Python fan. Um, you say you say it right for starters. And yeah, so... you know, Peter Cook, Dudley Moore, um, and uh, anything that Jerry Anderson did. Although I'm a little bit disappointed in the new Captain Scarlet and the Thunderbirds thing. Yeah, that doesn't look quite right, does it? It's, it, it doesn't look quite right, uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm happy for it. But I still, I mean, you know, Captain Scarlet and Stingray and Joe Thunderbirds, 19. Joe 90. Um, uh, what was the priest? What was his name? There, there was the other, uh, there was another show Jerry Anderson did, and it was a sort of a priest puppet. I can't remember. Well, you you But Captain Scarlet, I think, pound for pound, is one of the is one of the great the great shows of all time. <laughs> it's also got the theme tune that will never leave your head. No, never. And and Secret Agent Man, the Prisoner, 
the saint. Um, I, I, you know, I grew up on a steady diet of, uh, of that, of, of, of British television. And, uh, and for my money, Prime Suspect may be the greatest television of all time. And that's also, that was another thing was that, that to me, Bosch has, has a bit of that in the it same way. It seems European, doesn't it? Well, yeah. And Tennyson doesn't. She doesn't solve the crime in one episode, you know, and neither does Harry Bosch. We take 10 episodes to sort of go through that journey. Uh, I'm not comparing myself to Helen Mirren, uh, but uh, prime suspect, without question, um, just brilliant, flawless uh, writing and, and acting. So if we, can, uh, if we can come close, and I think we do, um, we, we've done it right because that to me is that's that's the highest level this feels a bit like bragging but I know you're an Empire subscriber yes and I was wondering are there any articles that you've particularly enjoyed recently and I mention this because we recently interviewed Mads Mikkelsen who said he was a big Bosch fan yeah I, I saw that and I was hoping there was some way in heck there could be some kind of character inclusion of Mads because if he's a fan I mean yeah, I, no. you guys on screen together would be great yeah, we would. I would love to work with him. He actually, my brother from another mother, Lawrence Fishburne, is is uh, does Hannibal with Mads, and I, I I told him to reach out and, and say hello to Mads because I'm a I'm a huge fan of his work. I mean, he's a he's a great actor and he's so good on that show as well. But I mean, look, he's got an enormous body of work behind him of of great things that he's done. Well, I I, I love the magazine because I'm a I'm a total cinephile and. What Empire, you know, provides that other magazines don't is a fantastic writing, really good artwork, um, and it's a very beautifully put together magazine. I, you know, much to my wife's dismay, I keep all of my issues of Empire. So, and we just moved recently, and there I can just tell you that there were several boxes that are marked Empire, and because uh, I can't, because I, I, you know. In the same way, like Cinefect, I go back and, and reread the magazines because I think that it's really the go-to and most informative uh, publication that's out there, you know, regarding films and people who love films. And, and we need more magazines like that. Well, no, I mean, we don't. We don't want any <laughs> other magazines, no other competition. There is no other competition, and there never will be. Empire is it, number one. If you don't read Empire, then you're a loser. I feel like if I didn't end the interview there, I'd be failing my duty as an Empire writer. So I'm just going to say thank you very much. Thank you. It's a privilege to do this with you. And as always, uh, cheers, man. And thanks for cheers. all the support. No, real pleasure. Thank you. Okay, let's have some lovely movie reviews now. Let's start with Selma, which is uh, Ava DuFernay's tale of the 1965 civil rights marches in the small American town of Selma. And it stars David Oyelowo, formerly of this podcast, as Martin Luther King. Probably not of this podcast. Uh, Helen. This is pretty terrific. So it's set in, as you say, 1965. Um, so Selma, Alabama, um, which was a, a very segregated racist town, basically, became the focal point of this march by black civil rights activists uh, with Dr. King leading the way mm -hmm. um, that met enormously bloody resistance from the state troopers, basically, and the local local police, um, you know, and it, and which is shown on screen here. And so it, it's a sort of, it's a long story. There, there was more than one Selma to Montgomery march. It's a 50-mile march um, lasting a number of days. There was more than one attempt at it. Um, and this is the story of basically that entire 
campaign, that, that entire section, if you like, of, this, of the civil rights movement. Um, Oyelowo is very much at the heart of the film, as you would expect. Um, but what's interesting is it's, it does feel like an ensemble piece. There's nobody who isn't great in this, and everybody in it um, has what feels like a very fully developed character, even if they've only got a couple of minutes on screen. Oprah Winifrey's in it for literally, what, two minutes and then a couple of crowd scenes? Yeah, a couple of crowd scenes. Um, and, you know, but you still get an mm. enormous sense of that character just from, from mm. that little section. And I think it, it does a, a wonderful job of, of bringing that little slice of history to life and, and a horrifying job of showing us how far we haven't come, um, you know, against the recent uh, examples of Ferguson and New York and so on. Well, you know, it shows us how far we've come and then how far we have to go yeah. at the same time. Uh, there are scenes in this movie that you could literally have just ripped from someone's mobile phone. There are scenes in this that are very redolent of the scenes of Ferguson and of what happened to Eric Garner, I yeah. Can't Breathe. Um, and it's it's horrifying and moving and affecting. Um, but at the same time, it begins with a scene in which Oprah Winfrey's character, well, it begins, begins with a, a, a shocking bombing. But then there's a scene where Oprah Winfrey's character in Selma goes to try and vote, and she comes up against this extraordinary bigot yeah. who just keeps moving the goalposts. Uh, coming up with a series of, of questions that are ultimately impossible for her to answer. Uh, uh, and to, it should be said impossible for anyone to answer. Impossible for anyone to answer. Name every judge in the state or something like that. Yeah. I, I'm, I don't know about anybody out there, but I couldn't do that for anywhere I've yeah. ever lived. Absolutely. Well, yeah, I, I, yeah, I'd be screwed. Uh, and it's, it's shocking to see the levels of bigotry and violence and hatred uh, exuded towards black people back in the uh, in the sixties, and the quiet dignity with which they suffered those indignities. Um, it's 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 stunning. But um, for me, this is David Oyelowo's film. Um, he's absolutely amazing in it. And I wrote the review for Empire, and I think a couple of weeks ago, Phil, you and I said that this movie was slightly perfunctory and pedestrian in places and I still feel that way however it moved me in a way that very few films have recently there's a, there's a scene about halfway through which absolutely destroyed me and it, it, it's built for me on the power of Oyelowo's performance mm. Mm. and it's not a it's not a one note performance it's not no uh, he, he doesn't portray King as a, as a saint which I think we all have a, a tendency to see him as mm. a lot of the time he portrays him very much as a, as a human being with his own priorities and his own concerns um, which which were a real issue during this uh, during this campaign. You you see the dangers involved in being a civil rights campaigner at the time, um, the very real dangers to not just you but your entire family to yeah. those around you, um, and and going on anyway. But it it doesn't you know it doesn't sort of play up the martyrdom angle. It it, it just makes that a part of a of a human person. Mm. It's quite a deft script in that regard. It yeah. doesn't bang home the fact that he's philandering. It just gives you little scenes, little moments between he and his wife um, mm. that, that play out very truthfully. Um, and it's a great cast all the way through. It's surprisingly British, really, with Tom Wilkinson playing LBJ. Mm. And um, I thought a really, really good Tim Roth performance mm. as, um, as George Wallace, who's mm. the sort of ultimate yeah. politician who, who keeps... You can see the way that the landscape is changing under his feet and has to try and act accordingly. Um, I don't think I don't, I don't think he's that at all. I think he's a, a snake in this Wallace. Yeah, but he knows he knows as far how far he can push things, and I think that's where this film is, is really interesting in in the sort of 
um, anatomy of a of a of a pub, this massive public movement in the days before social media, before when you had to go out and actually canvas and doorstep and mm. get numbers and get bodies on a bridge um, to make your point. Um, and I think it's really fascinating in that regard um, as a piece of history. And I like that it's not just a straight, you know, sort of bio biopic leading up to his death, his assassination. It takes this one slices this one short period of time and really does it justice. I think that's yeah. great. We should actually say, I mean, you, you mentioned King's wife, Carmen Edrigo, uh, in that role is, is wonderful as well. Apparently um, the second time she's played that role. Um, and she's clearly got a, you know, got a great handle on it, frankly. Mm. But uh, again, you know, those scenes, Yellow is brilliant, but you, you need somebody to bounce off there. And, and she is, she's fantastic. Loved her. Absolutely. Uh, four stars for Selma. I think the interesting thing about this movie is it, it, it was kind of shut out of the Oscar race. Ava DuVernay was shut out of the Oscar race. And um, and more shockingly for me, David Oyelowo was shut out of the Oscars and BAFTA race as well. Um, I just find it absolutely flabbergasting. I think he's astonishing in this movie and uh, and should have got his just reward in the shape of a nomination at least. But there you go. Four stars for Selma. Um, and next up, by way of contrast, we have The Interview. <laughs> Another film that shows us how far we've come and how far we have to go. Uh, this is the James Franco, Seth Rogen movie that nearly killed us all. Yeah, so this is the story of uh, a rather dim, let's say, uh, television host, Dave Skylark, who's played by James Franco, um, and his producer, Aaron, uh, who's played by Seth Rogen, who also writes and directs alongside Evan Goldberg. Um, they are invited to go to North Korea and interview Kim Jong-un. Now, this is great for both of them because they've just they've both been stressing about their careers being too fluffy and light, and they want to do something more substantive and important in the world. Um but it's even better for the CIA, who immediately recruit them both to assassinate this totalitarian leader. Um, so they go off to um, North Korea, where they are shocked to discover that Kim Jong-un seems like an awfully nice fella. Dave, in particular, really befriends him. And they both begin to have, you know, second thoughts about this whole killing somebody thing. Uh, and and the farce builds really from there. Yep. Um, viewed strictly as... A comedy. This is exactly what you'd expect, I think, of a Seth Rogen and James Franco kind of comedy. They've got that kind of back and forth quite well, the sort of odd couple, you know, nature of the two of them. Franco, very sort of superficial, very slick. Uh, you know, Seth Rogen is the slightly schlubbier, slightly more well-meaning, down-to-earth kind of guy. Um, that doesn't work too badly. I think the problem is it's just a, a bizarre, weird decision to set this in a real totalitarian state where there are genuinely people starving and play it for laughs. And it, it feels really bizarre. Like, it doesn't feel like they've succeeded in any kind of satire. It feels like they've just done something weirdly inappropriate for a comedy that's mostly about ass jokes. Hmm. Yes, quite a lot of ass jokes. Lots of ass jokes. Lots of ass jokes in this one. Yeah, I kind of, I'm kindly with you on that one. I think they wanted, though, with this one to have a movie that can't really get into this without going into spoilers. But, you know, there is there are scenes towards the end that, that reveal the, not the full extent of the depravities of, oh, of sure. Kim Jong-un's regime. But I think they wanted to, to fall back on that and go, look, this is real, this is happening, this is what people actually are told to believe about this guy in North Korea. He mm -hmm. is dangerous and therefore um, that's what that, that's what I think is what they wanted. They wanted that impact. But it is charring. It doesn't really work with the uh, with the ass jokes, and there are a lot of ass jokes. And and also, I think it's funny enough and make me laugh fairly consistently all the way through. Not mm. huge, big, roaring belly laughs, apart from one absolutely deranged fight scene near the end, which which did make me laugh quite a lot. 
Um, but one of my chief problems with this was James Franco, who mm. was in a completely different film to everybody else. <laughs> now, maybe he was treating it as an art project. Who knows? Maybe he was being postmodern again, but Seth Rogen plays this thing with his typical Seth Rogen, very naturalistic, you know, very deadpan. And then you have Franco, who is mugging and playing it over the top and is just like no human being I've ever met. He's also a real motormouth in it. There were times where I was tempted to just shh, just shh the screen, like just just stop talking, please, shh. Yes, he's, uh, he is a moron and the script calls for him to be moronic in almost every single situation. And uh, I also kind of felt myself, he didn't convince me as a TV host. What? And that seems weird. It seems weird. <laughs> but we know the type of people that Dave Skylark is poking fun at. And it, it didn't seem to me to be spot on. It didn't seem to me to be uh, remotely from that world. Uh, that's what took me out of that film, <laughs> to, be, to be honest. But, um, you know, this is the film that obviously, you know, sparked off the, the hacking of Sony, allegedly. Allegedly. Sparked off the hacking of Sony and very nearly brought World War Three to our doorsteps. And when you look upon it now, now that the dust has maybe settled... It all seems like a little bit of a, a storm in a teacup. Um, it seems hard that anyone seems hard to believe that anyone would get worked up about this movie. Yeah, so we gave that one three stars. Three stars for the interview. Yeah, not quite as good as uh, as our last film. Uh, this is the end, but uh, but it's got enough. It's got enough in it, I think, to make people laugh. Uh, next up, speaking of films that have enough in them to make people laugh, <laughs> Jupiter Ascending. Phil, Ascending. Well, I don't know where you start with this one. There's so much happening in this film. The, it's kind of you, you sort of reaching brain overload quite fast. It's um, obviously the Wachowskis' latest, um, and it's basically, it's basically, it, it's kind of. He's always the will to live already. I think you just summed it up perfectly. <laughs> to be honest, it's kind of. I mean, it's, so where do you where do you start with Jupiter ascending? Well, I guess is, you start with Jupiter. Jupiter is, yeah. is is the character played by Mila Kunis, and she is kind of the. She's kind of the neo of this film, I guess. She's she's a Russian emigre to America who does menial work, who gets suddenly, with the help of Channing Tatum's half-man, half-wolf creature on gravity-defying roller skates, dragged <laughs> into this gigantic Flash Gordon-y, John Cartery space disco epic space it's disco super epic. camp it's got it's got these three siblings who are all rivals and, it, and here it goes off in, into kind of Greek and Roman mythology and archetypes in ways that you really can barely conceive of um, these guys these this family um, have links to Juno to Jupiter that you don't really want to give away because it's a spoiler uh -huh. um, and they have this strange capitalist enterprise which again I think delves into spoiler territory which which she threatens, basically. They want to make a lot of money from this scheme that they have in, in the galaxy. I think what the Chaskis do really well is they have so many ideas and mm. so much going on that it basically spills out the side of the screen. Uh, the second half of this film is just one long VFX shot. Um, and it's not a bad VFX shot. There's just so much. You just feel drunk on all the data. I love your um, tweet from last night. Bad news, other movies. The Jupiter Ascending's just used all the CGI. All um, the CGI. Yeah. There is none left. It's going to have to wait for it to re sort of replenish. <laughs> because it's just, it's just a colossal amount of 
stuff happening. And there are moments, we watched it on the IMAX screen in 3D, yeah. there are moments where you just don't know where to look in the frame. And I think that's a, that's a flaw in the filmmaking. There's one shot towards the end where there's a spacecraft and there's a chase and they're trying to reach the spacecraft and it should be kind of interstellary. But I just didn't know what I was supposed to be looking at. There's just stuff happening everywhere. Um, and it's, it's a little overwhelming. But, but, but with all that, it's a bit dull. I think that was my major thing about it. It's like there's ideas galore, there's visuals galore. They invent everything from the ground up, the Wachowskis, which mm. I think is admirable. All those things are great, but I just it's just too much. You feel punch drunk really fast. And I, I didn't really buy the central performances particularly. They, they seem to veer between like high camp, in the case of Eddie Redmayne, and the highest camp. The highest of camp, and deliberately so. That's what there you've been told no to more, do. There's no more oxygen the where Eddie Redmayne has set up camp. <laughs> there is, yeah. The VFX and the oxygen have all been sucked out of the movie industry from this film <laughs> into some massive sort of interstellar-style black hole. And the and and then Channing Tatum, who's quite kind of, you know, wouldn't be out of place in some sort of, you know, Mike Lee film. He's really sort of downbeat and <laughs> downbeat and depressed. And you get, you get um, Sean Bean turning Sean up. Sean Bean know. turns up spouting stuff about bees and exposition. It takes you on this bizarre journey, but yeah, it's a bit of a snooze at times, I'm afraid. Well, I quite liked it. I was thoroughly entertained pretty much throughout. I will agree that there are some frames of the action sequences in particular that where you, you can't see what's going on. It's more the burly brawl than the Matrix one. <laughs> um and I think that's a bit of a flaw. Um, there are other times where Mila Kunis and Channing Tatum are the least gorgeous things you can see anywhere because everything is so beautiful. This is every classic sci-fi cover brought to glorious, bright, shiny, golden life. Um, and there's a lot to be said for that. I mean, the, the design of most things in this film is utterly stunning. Mm. Um and it's just so ridiculous and ludicrous and over the top that there was there was a lot to love about it. I also loved there were a couple of times when they they slowed down and actually had a more almost um, came in our reviews compared it to Douglas Adams, which is fair. But there's a sort of Douglas Adamsy Terry Gilliamy bit, which actually well, has Terry, uh, Terry Gilliam, Gilliam. <laughs> yeah, so in it. Lovely bit where sent up bureaucracy, yeah. you know, Johnny Paperwork and, and all that. And that's one Johnny Paperwork again. Yeah, he's back. He's back. Um and honestly that that bit I thought was was hilarious. And if there had been a bit more of that kind of leavening, yeah. it would have been great. But the plot doesn't really make a heck of a lot of sense and they introduce these characters who are bad guys and then lose them for most of the film. Yeah. There are people, you know, the, the same thing keeps happening over and over again, which is basically that Channing Tatum has to rescue Mila Kunis. At least five times. Yeah. She's she's very interesting. I said this last night on Twitter. It's like, I really feel for me to get into this film properly, we need a spoiler special. I don't know there's an appetite out there for a, a Jupiter Ascending spoiler special uh, podcast because there are things that happen in the last third of this movie that I need to talk about. Yeah. And there are things about the characterization. Jupiter, in particular, Mila Kunis is a feisty, spunky person in real life. And, and I didn't really get that from Jupiter herself. She's, I, 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 think I didn't that, think she was that bad. Yes, but she, she needs good. to be rescued. Yeah. Five times in the movie, and there's no real sense of growth. Her, her biggest, you know, Neo learns to become the guy, the kung fu guy, the one, and Jupiter basically does a bit of light admin. There's there's not a lot going on for for Mila Kunis in terms of uh, butt kicking in this one. Not that it necessarily needs to be, but 
I love it when filmmakers reach for the stars. I really do. I love mm. when people take risks and put things on screen I've never seen before. It's one of the reasons I loved Kingsman, The Secret Service, because I have things I'd never seen before in a, in a mainstream film. And the same thing with Jupiter Ascending. Um, it was a bit blurry <laughs> with the 3D, so I really couldn't make it out. But I, I was like, <laughs> uh, yes, I, I, I admire what they're... I think what I'm seeing, <laughs> I think I admire that. I, I admire the fact that Sean Bean is playing a half... He's playing Eric Halfaby, isn't he? Essentially, he's playing a man who's half bee, half human. I admire batshit craziness like that. I just wish you're absolutely right. It had more of a, of a tongue in the cheek. Yeah. And then maybe we could have we, we could have uh, we had a, a modern. It needed a little bit more Fifth Element. It's not Precisely. quite Fifth Element enough. Precisely. Precisely. But we come not to kick Jupiter Ascending in the in the swingers uh, because there has been a sense of this one that got pushed back quite a while. Uh, so immediately everyone went ooh stinker and then uh, the trailers came out and everyone went yep stinker and then and then there's been a sort of critical shark frenzy like the waters have been chummed and everyone has just got together and gone it's the worst film ever made and it absolutely isn't that we gave it two stars and it's one of those weird films and it's kind of hard to disagree with that but at the same time if you tripped and fell and accidentally slapped an extra star on it it wouldn't be the end of the world I would agree with that okay Whoops, I tripped. <laughs> but there are people, and Phil is making his, I thought it was terrible face. I didn't um, think, no, 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 I didn't think it was terrible. Um, it was a noble failure in some ways. I had lots of ideas. Just, uh, I don't know, it wasn't, okay. it wasn't that much fun, I didn't think. Yeah, it needed more fun. More fun than we would have been uh, uh, glowing about it. Also out this week is Sean the Sheep, the movie, the latest from Arben's box of stop motion treasures. Um, we gave that four stars. It seems to be a return to form for Artman, who haven't been off form. I don't even know why I said that. Uh, but they're, they're brilliant. If you like Sean the Sheep, the TV show, if you have kids, go and see the film. If you haven't got kids, go and see it anyway. Uh, it sounds like an absolute blast. Uh, and that's it for this week's Empire Podcast. Uh, join us next week for more film-related fun where we'll be joined by Mark Strong, uh, back for his third time in the podcast. Oh, my, we get to keep him. We get to keep Mark Strong. Helen, yes. where do you want to put him? Well, I'm sure I'll think <laughs> <Okay>. somewhere. <laughs> in a strong box. Oh, <laughs> Thank you. And we'll also be joined... Steady on, Phil. And we'll also be joined by Peter Strickland, uh, director... Well, we said that last week. We, we might push him back mm-hmm. the week because the, the movie's gone back. To it Friday has gone 20. back. Uh, yeah, we're not just randomly bumping <laughs> Peter Strickland. Uh, the movie's gone back to Feb 20th, so he might be uh, the guest of next week's podcast. I don't know. Keep him peeled. We'll see what happens. Until then, it is goodbye from Helen. Toodaloo. It's goodbye from Phil. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to... What am I off to do? What are you off to do? What am I off to do? You're off to find somewhere to put Douglas Booth. That's good. See you next week.